Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin actually in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The sixth month happens to be the number of months that Elizabeth was pregnant. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you have uh, given it to us as a guide for our lives. And we just ask you to bless this time, this short time that we have, Lord, in your word. And that you would use me to speak truth. And if there's anybody here who specifically needs the truth that will be read and spoken, Lord, I pray that you open their heart, open their mind, open their eyes, Lord. Amen. Interesting. So within this short passage, Jesus, he's going to have the name Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. He's going to be called Son of the Most High, which is synonymous with Son of God. He's said that his that um, that uh, the the throne of his father David. So now he's the son of David, and then he would be called holy, and because of that, called the son of God. So here we have a few foundations of our Christian faith. There are certain, the, uh, theologians talk about essentials, essentials of the faith. Things that you'd want to make sure that if you consider yourself a Christian, you'd want to make sure that those were things that you believed. That those were things that you adhered to. You'd want to make sure that if it was an essential of the faith, that you too would want to be in agreement with it given the fact that uh, we are now in the 21st century and uh, some of these doctrines have been 
thought about and debated upon for centuries and then sort of codified in what we would call uh, the church creeds. For instance, in this passage here, as we've already said, Jesus is attributed with deity. So, the deity of Christ is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. When you get a knock on your front door on a Saturday morning, and um, maybe a couple of well-dressed individuals want to share some pamphlets with you, I can assure you they don't ascribe or adhere to to the doctrine that Jesus is divine, that he is God in human flesh. And that would be for the well-dressed individuals at your door and or the couple of gentlemen in white shirts riding their bicycles, also well-dressed. They wouldn't adhere to that doctrine either. That's the deity of Christ. Now, another really interesting portion of this scripture here is where, you know, Mary says, um, how will this be since I'm a virgin? How will this be? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, some people, um, here's the thing, the virgin birth has come under uh, extreme attack pressure, what have you, over the last century, and it has to do with um, those that are super insightful and um, know better than you and I to actually uh, believe what the scriptures have to say, because that supernatural stuff, well, we just have to get rid of that, because everybody knows that, uh, that women don't give birth if they're virgins. Well, Here's the thing about that. The virgin birth is crucial to our faith for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in two places, in Luke and in Matthew. And if the, and if the virgin conception slash birth didn't occur, then we have a, uh, a faulty recording here in Scripture. We have air, and if we have air here, how can we be sure that their error isn't in other places of Scripture? So because it's recorded, it's crucial that we adhere to it. That's one reason. Number two, the virgin birth was prophesied. Pastor Michael, uh, on Sunday, I wasn't in here. Um, I was upstairs in firm foundation. However, I'm almost certain that he taught from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Is that correct? That is correct. And in that passage, talks about a virgin conceiving, right? And he, he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So you have a fulfilled prophecy. You have an error-free scriptures. And then I would uh, venture to say that another reason would be because it simply makes sense of who God is who Jesus is, why he came to earth, what his role was, and 
having him born via a virgin fits the uh, narrative perfectly. Look very carefully here. The Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What Luke is reporting here is, and he no doubt um, spoke directly to Mary, that he got her account of this encounter, is the angel is intimating that had the Holy Spirit not come upon her, there is no way, in fact, that her child could be called holy or the Son of God. It says, therefore. So because of the Holy Spirit coming upon her, that is the reason why the child can be called holy, which in turn means, because it's holy, it is the Son of God, i.e., God in human flesh. So, that is another doctrine that we want to um, retain and hold on to. What's interesting is I, I looked online, I looked at our uh, statement of faith here for uh, living truth, and um, we make it very clear the things that we believe in, besides the Bible, the one true living God, the triune nature of the Godhead. We believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, we believe in God the Holy Spirit. We uh, make sure to uh, make it clear that God the Son is fully God and fully man. We make it clear that he was born a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, etc., etc. So, three important reasons to hold on to the virgin birth. I don't know if anybody in here has run into it, but even within evangelical churches, in uh, what we would consider conservative Christianity, people are calling, it, calling the virgin birth into question. So, let's move our attention now to the fact that Jesus is called the Son of God. I want to, I want to uh, go through some scriptures and uh, just reinforce the fact that that attribution, Son of God, does mean that Jesus is God in human flesh. Okay? So, I think about what the demons, how the demons responded and what they said. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, where uh, Jesus is in the wilderness into the, uh, uh, and led to temptation, in Matthew chapter 4, let's see, I might as well read it. Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God. So even the demons recognized that Son of God means something supernatural. If you are the Son of God, it doesn't mean we wouldn't get tempted that way, yet we're called sons of God, aren't we? 
as followers of Christ. We're called sons of God, but we're not the son of God. So we wouldn't be tempted. Satan wouldn't be foolish enough to say, hey, you call yourself a son of God? Let me see you turn these stones into bread. Wouldn't happen. But here, the tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's not a temptation unless he had the ability to turn stones into bread. In Mark chapter 3, whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. In Luke chapter 4, again, demons were shouting, You are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the anointed one. They knew him to be the anointed one. Now, what about the, the uh, religious leaders? What did they think of Jesus and the title of Son of God? Let's turn to uh, John chapter 5, please. John chapter 5. So in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who had been an invalid or crippled and he did it on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders were asking the man, who healed you? Um, in fact, here in verse 12, they said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. God is known as Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, my father is working on the Sabbath. Guess who else is working on the Sabbath? Jesus says, me, I am. That is a claim to deity. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus as a son of God is a claim to be God. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Begin at verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Listen, Jesus made, couldn't have made it plainer. They, the, uh, the, the Jewish, the uh, religious leaders were blind. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. That one stung. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Imagine that. Imagine being, hearing that conversation. Jesus said, he's walking around with the, with the uh, religious leaders. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Wow. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's not for your good works. It's the blasphemy. You call God your Father. You say that you and Him are one. You say the works you do are in His name. You claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Etc., etc. Jesus says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? Uh, he's speaking of himself. I'm in verse 36. Do you say of him, self referential, whom the Father consecrated, whom the Father set apart and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. The demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was divine. The Jews were certainly irritated, angry, and upset because every time they turned around, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, i.e. deity. Let's turn to uh, John chapter 19. Jesus is before Pilate. In fact, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 39, it says, But you have a custom 
Pilate says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. He's talking to the religious leaders. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? That would be uh, Jesus. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. He has made himself to be the Son of God. The law was blasphemy. The, the law was not equating yourself with God. The law was not saying that you were God. And so if he's blaspheming by saying, claiming to be the Son of God, then guess what? The Jews certainly believed that when Jesus identified himself as the Son of God, that he was identifying his nature to be equal with the Father's nature. And that is why they accused him of being guilty of blasphemy. So I mentioned that we had, that this passage gave us some, some, some real uh, meat as far as thinking about our doctrines, the things that we believe in, the things that we hold dear. And so we talk about the, uh, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. Now the question arises, if Jesus is, is God, or, then how can he be man? How can he also be a man? Because our faith teaches, and out of that passage also, we, we hold to the fact that Jesus is um, truly God and he's truly man. There was a debate that went on for, from about the 4th to the 7th century that had to do with this exact issue. How can we think of Jesus as being divine and yet being human? And so, essentially, it came down to there were basically two camps, and one of them held to the fact that Jesus had one nature. He had one nature. And basically, two persons. And the other camp was that Jesus was one person with two natures. 
And the orthodox position, the one that only makes sense for us, although we don't talk about it often, is the fact that Jesus is a single person with a dual nature. That he is fully God and fully man. It's very important that we have a clear conception and that we believe the right things about what the scripture teaches. That doesn't mean, however, that we have a, we have a full comprehension of what that means. So, when you're thinking about uh, avoiding error, we want to avoid error. We want to avoid uh, heretical ideas. That's easier than um, having a full and complete understanding of what it is that we claim to believe. For instance, the Trinity, the triune nature of God. How is it that there is one God, yet three persons? That's what we believe. That's what we adhere to. Am I right? We don't believe that, that, that we worship three gods and three persons, or three gods and one person. But yet throughout history, many groups have. No, we believe in three persons, one God. Distinct, yet uh, unified in the Godhead. Now, when we talk about Jesus, we have that same type of tension. We can't completely grasp or understand what it means to say that Jesus is one person with two natures. But what we can do, what we can do is avoid the faulty teaching and avoid the error. And that's easier to do than grasping completely what it means for Jesus to be truly God and truly man. So what he's not, what Jesus isn't, he isn't God taking on um, a human body, like a costume. That wouldn't be a, the right conception to think of, of Jesus. It, wouldn't, it also wouldn't be a right conception to think of Jesus that he entered a human being, he could have entered, God could have entered any old human being if that was the case. It isn't the right conception that Jesus just entered a human being and then just um, blended natures and sort of masks, masked his, uh, his divine attributes. That wouldn't be correct either because then he would be giving up some of his deity. No, Jesus for all eternity has been God. And so God can never give up his own attributes and remain God. It, it, that's impossible. So those are errors we want to avoid. There's a very interesting passage in John chapter 5, and I want you to turn there. John chapter 5. We use the word begotten. We know the word begotten, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's used in other places throughout scripture. 
But I want to look at this one particular passage in John chapter 5 because it gives us some, a, a, a really nice rendering of how it is that we can think of Jesus as being eternal and fully God and yet entering into time and history and living as a man. So in verse 25 of John chapter 5, Jesus says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 26 is the verse that is crucial. For as the Father has life in himself, that little saying, that little uh, four-word, five-word bit has lots of meaning. The Father has life in himself. That means the Father is not contingent. The Father is self-existent. The Father has life in himself. God, the greatest conceivable being, cannot be derivative, contingent, any of it. He's self-existent for all eternity. I remember as a kid, I'd say to my mom, well, mom, who made God? I don't know, nobody made God. What do you mean nobody made God? Everything has a beginning. No, not everything has a beginning. There has to be something that's uncaused. Pastor Michael does this very well up here on Sundays when he's doing the cosmological argument. So, for as the, the Father has life in himself, it's self-generated. He's eternal. And now look what he says. So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Son has life in himself. What if it had said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life. That's what he would say about you and me. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life. So also he has granted Joe Kelly to have life. If that was the case, that would be God granting us life. We would be derivative. We would be contingent. Our existence would depend on God. Do you see the difference? But that's not what it says. What if it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so also the Son has life in himself. You're going to have two deities. You would have two gods. You can't have two gods. For as the Father has life in himself, if it said, so also the Son has life in himself, you have two separate gods. They would both be self-existent. That wouldn't work. For several reasons. 
but it would certainly go against what we adhere to and believe and teach, that there's one God in three persons. So, the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That word granted is the word that leaves us baffled. It's incomprehensible to us because what it's saying is that the Father and the Son have for eternity been together and the Son has always remained in that Father-Son relationship in the Godhead. And it's, it's sort of a, it's a subordinate relationship in the sense of um, how they interact with one another. And that's the, about the best we can do. But it's amazing to me that the way it's worded lines up perfectly with how you and I um, would claim to believe if somebody asked you, what do you, you believe, what do you mean you believe in the Trinity? How does that work? That's three gods. No, it's not three gods. You're missing it. That's, but the Trinity is for a whole other time. We're talking about Jesus as Son of God. So, we, um, Jesus is not a contingent being, nor is he a separate God, which would be polytheism. So, I want to... Um, I want to get to the point where I, I feel comfortable wrapping it up. We have in our text the angel visiting Mary, telling her that she's going to conceive and have a son. He's going to sit on his father David's throne forever, which fulfills the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we won't get to, but that's okay. See, I knew that tonight would be a one of a multi-part. So if I don't go anywhere, maybe next Christmas I'll do part two, <laughs> and then the one after that I'll do another part. Or maybe you'll avoid it if I'm doing it. Um, so I want to say this. I want to read this particular uh, passage to you, which is a beautiful picture of what it means that Jesus is fully God and fully man and why it is that God would stoop and lower himself to become a man. And so, if you're here and you're not sure that you know who this God is and you want to know more, I want you to pay uh, careful attention to this passage. And then, um, what time am I supposed to be done here? Okay, so uh, Philippians chapter 2, we have a wonderful passage that captures for us what it means that our Savior is both deity and humanity, and why it is that he came in the very first place. So our writer Paul, to the church in Philippi says in chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
What, atti what, what attitude is this that's in Christ Jesus? He says, who, although he, Jesus Christ, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that holy little baby that was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, who was called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, lived in eternity past in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, had this attitude. He emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. And because he was made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to the point of being obedient to a group of individuals that spit on him, beat him, mocked him, whipped him, drove nails through his hands and feet. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that why? He did that because he loves you and I. That's why he did it. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you don't know, if you don't know this person, if you don't know Jesus that way, if you don't know the Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, then I want you to pray, and I want you to pray with me, and if you do so, Pastor Mike will be here, other pastors, I'll be down front, you have questions you want to pray um, individually you can do that too but <clears throat> this is a, a I'm going to say a prayer and it's a, a prayer that I said a long time ago and uh, tell you what God saved me God saved me he can save you too and believe me if you knew my past you would uh, you would agree that if he can save me he can save you so I'm going to pray now, and I just, uh, I just trust that this message has brought a little something to uh, the Christmas season for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I just thank you that, that you sent the Son, you sent your Son to become like us that he humbled himself to become human being, to put on flesh. He did so, and he did so that he could live like us, that he could experience temptation like us. Yet he overcame that temptation, lived a perfect, sinful life, sinless life, a perfect one. And because of that, his death on the cross provided the means by which we can have our sins forgiven. Lord, we are a sinful people. We thank you for the sacrifice of 
our Savior Christ. And Lord, for anybody in this room that doesn't know you, I would ask that you would uh, open their hearts and their minds to just say something like this. Dear Lord, I'm not sure exactly what Joe was talking about, but I would like to know more about Jesus. There's been something missing in my life. I would like to confess my sins. I would like you to come into my life, change me, make me a new person. Help me to grow, give me a hunger to learn about you and to be more like you. And Lord, may this Christmas season be one like I've never experienced before because I know who the baby in the manger is. He's the eternal, the eternal Lord, the eternal God who died on the cross for my sins. Amen.